it seems like you could do basically anything you want. You could create pretty much any company you wanted if you put your mind to it. Why do you spend your time teaching health? Um, I think there's two reasons. The one is that I was very fortunate in my life to um, address money early on. And so I don't have to make decisions based on money all the time. And, and that allows me to truly follow passion. And, and, and because frankly, when I first started getting interested in health in the early 90s, I didn't see a path for making money. I didn't believe I could write a book. I didn't understand those things. And so I didn't go down that path because, you know, I had, I had other dreams that I wanted to achieve. Um, and now that I'm in a place where that's not the biggest mystery to me in the world, I um, decided to turn to what I think is ultimately the foundation of everything. It's the ultimate foundation of the quality of life. And that is health. It, it, there's, I mean, people go, yeah, but your happiness and your psychology is really important. Yeah, except that your health is the foundation of that too. And so I, I really believe in my kind of mission to help people improve the quality of their life experience. The very first place to begin is how they fuel and build their bodies. Today, I usually say that every guest, uh, we're gonna target like health or we're gonna target self-love or we're gonna target money. But I feel like with you, there's no way that I could separate all three of these because you are like one of the walking embodiments of all three of them. And so I kind of want to let you jump around and I'm going to ask you a bunch of stories. So like when I pick up a fiction book, I'll finish it in three days. When I pick up uh, something like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F, it'll take me like a week or two weeks and I'll have like metered time, like an hour a day, two hours a day to read, right? But I've been picking up this new style of book that I've been seeing that I am obsessed with. And I don't know what the genre is called, but like I read... Um, uh, that Will Never Work, the Netflix book by Mark Randolph, I believe is his name, the original founder of Netflix. Uh, I read um, Bob Iger's new book, uh, The Ride of a Lifetime. It was written as a story form. The Netflix one was written as story form. The way I describe them, it's really, but I think of them as Gladwellian. They, yes. They, it, it's the way Gladwell writes and like Freakonomics, Gladwell's books, and some of these, it's not exactly a biography, but it's taught through story and all of a sudden the difference is a book that you don't have to push yourself through yes exactly and i've been on this kick and I'm, I'm putting together this list for people too of all these gladwellian books that i've been reading that are new that are just fascinating reads because i love learning these things because i've read so many of these books on business on management on marketing and i know all the tools and strategies but I, I don't know how they work in practice. It's almost like I want to apprentice under these people. And these books allow you to do things like that. And that's why I love people sharing their stories so much, not about why the things worked, but how they designed the systems that worked. You do a lot of crazy things. You teach speaking, you teach business, you teach health, you go to Africa and you take these amazing trips it seems like you could do basically anything you want. You could create pretty much any company you wanted if you put your mind to it. Why do you spend your time teaching health? Um, I think there's two reasons. The one is that I was very fortunate in my life to um, address money early on. And so I don't have to make decisions based on money all the time. And, and that allows me to truly follow passion. And, 
and, and, and because frankly, when I first started getting interested in health in the early 90s, I didn't see a path for making money. I didn't believe I could write a book. I didn't understand those things. And so I didn't go down that path because, you know, I had, I had other dreams that I wanted to achieve. Um, and now that I'm in a place where that's not the biggest mystery to me in the world, I um, decided to turn to what I think is ultimately the foundation of everything. It's the ultimate foundation of the quality of life. And that is health. It, it, there's, it, I mean, people go, yeah, but your happiness and your psychology is really important. Yeah, except that your health is the foundation of that too. And so I, I really believe in my kind of mission to help people improve the quality of their life experience. The very first place to begin is how they fuel and build their bodies. You said in the early 90s, when you first got interested in health, you didn't see a path to making money with it. What changed between now and back then? Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely had a very suboptimal health experience in my late teens and early 20s. I, I, I was consistently ill, uh, allergies and digestive problems and acne and, you know, uh, chronic sinus infections and throat infections. Um, my tonsils bled every day. I mean, I was, I was in pain all the time. And so the first thing that happened is, is that I turned that around and I didn't turn it around through the guidance of the various medical professionals I was visiting with because all they ever prescribed was symptom management. They, they, provided, they, they, they prescribed medications that would assist with symptoms, but nobody ever saw, talked to me about prevention or cause. And so, you know, there came this point where I decided to have, a, um, I decided to have a, a, an experiment with food. And uh, I was inspired to do that by a bunch of my friends sitting me down, two of them sitting down going, you gotta, you gotta think about this stuff. And over the next 30 days, I so radically changed my relationship with food. I, I lost 35 pounds, all of my ailments went away. And, 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 and you know what's interesting is when you're young and you're sick and you're in pain all the time, you just numb yourself to it. You just get to a point where you're like, well, this is just who I am. You don't think of, at least I didn't. I didn't think of myself as sick. I just thought, well, this is who I am. I'm the guy with the allergies. I'm the guy with the throat infections. I'm the guy in the pain. When it all went away, uh, it was only then that I realized how bad it was. Like I, mm. I was suffering every single day. And, and I think there are a lot of people that are in that situation where they've got this low-grade, uh, consistent um, suffering that's taking place that they've numbed out and they're unaware of it. And so in my case, what happened was when I had this turnaround, I became deeply fascinated by, you know, why it is that my doctors, in fact, listen, I went to one of my doctors. In fact, one of the doctors was a relative of mine. And I said, you know, in, in all the years you went to medical school, he was a surgeon. So it was like 10 years. How much of that time did you spend studying food? And his answer was none. Mm. And you know, what really got me about that answer was that he was surprised by the answer. It was like, he'd never actually asked the question himself before. It, it never occurred to him that he'd spent 10 years studying medicine and none of that time was spent studying food and what has greater impact, impact on our health than food. And so that's where, that's where my passion came from. That's, that's where I suddenly really wanted to you know, get in and do the research and so on. But where the money question came into it was this, is that even after I'd done all this research and I'd really arrived at some fundamental truths about nutrition, there were two things that got in the way. The one was I wasn't a doctor or a nutritionist and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't feel like I had the right to write a book. I was trapped by a bunch of limiting beliefs about what I could achieve in my mid twenties. But the other one was, is I didn't want to write another diet book. There were too many of them anyway, and none of them work. They, they don't. I mean, you give people a bunch of rules, 
the minute they break one of those rules, their self-esteem is eroded slightly, which makes it harder for them to stick to the next set of rules, which means they break another rule, which means their self-esteem is eroded again. And now they're on the perpetual diet runway. And something I had figured out, I've put better words to it now, but something I figured out in the mid nineties is that people don't fail diets. Diets fail people. And I didn't want to write another diet that was going to fail people. And so I didn't see how to actually help people. I didn't see that if I went to them and said, oh, eat more of this and eat less of that. I, I didn't see that it worked because I did that for people and it didn't work. And then about six years ago, I- Also a long time passed. So it was like oh, late a long 90s. Time. I mean, this was a massive passion of mine over all these years. Um, I coached anybody who would listen. I, I continued doing research. I continued doing my own writing and my own thought process on it because the way I look at it is nobody, nobody will ever take as good care of my health as I will, just the way it is. In fact, I think that's a great principle people should use with money. Nobody will ever take care of your money as well as you will. So when we hand over our money to somebody else, we better do it with knowledge. Well, same thing with our health. And so I, the passion never stopped for me. People often go, well, why did you turn to health in, you know, recently? I never, the, the, the whole concept of food and nutritional anthropology and that stuff has been my deepest burning passion for since I was 21 years old. I just didn't know how to translate it into a business. And I, and I, you know, I just, I didn't see that it was even possible. And the way that finally changed was I didn't care about that anymore. I, I, it was no longer about that. I suddenly got to a place where what really mattered to me was having an impact on the world. And it wasn't about the business. It wasn't about the money because I'd made money anyway. And I started coaching people, but I added something different. I, I, I started adding the very things that I used in business coaching, behavioral change dynamics, we call them. I added very specific structure to the way I coach people. And all of a sudden it started working. And it, and it started working so well that they started telling their friends. And I did a class of eight people in my living room six, seven years ago. And those eight people, they told more people. And then I did eight more. And then I did eight more. And then one day this quite famous author in America did the program. And he was blown away. His name's Paul Sheely. And he was blown away. His team was setting up a webinar and he was looking at the landing page and he looked at his picture on the landing page and goes, that's not who I look at in the mirror. Where did you guys even get that picture? And they go, we took that picture three months ago. And that's how much he changed. And so then he told his network about it. And suddenly, like, you know, suddenly we had like a year's worth of clients sign up in two, three days. And Whoa. all of a sudden the magic took place. I didn't start it to make money but it started making money, which allowed us to put more money into research and it allowed us to put more money into platform development right to the day that Vishen Lakhiani from Mind Valley did the program. And he did the same thing up to this point. We have like 150 clients a year. Suddenly we're like at 300 clients for the year. And, and then he told his network and it was like 1100 clients in a week. And everything began to change to the point where now we've served over 20,000 people in 130 countries around the world, won awards. You know, it, it, it has been the most rewarding business activity of my life by far. And the irony is, it didn't start to make money, but it makes mm -hmm. money. Wow. Okay. So I have a, a series of questions that popped up that I'm really curious about. What were you doing in your early to mid-20s when you were going through all of those health issues like what was your life like i um i left um i left high school uh actually incompletely i didn't finish high school in the traditional sense 
And as Why? a consequence of that, it made going to university somewhat challenging and for a number of reasons, economically, my family, we were in this weird place where we didn't have the money to send me to university, but we had just enough money that I didn't qualify for funding, right? And, mm. and then I was missing some credits and one thing led to another and I just decided to jump into the workforce. I didn't know what else to do. And I found a sales job and um, I did that for about three years, right up until 21. And that year, 21 was just the biggest breakthrough for me. I'll never forget my mom calling me on my 21st birthday. And she goes, happy birthday. And she says, you know, you're, you're a really bright kid. And, I, and I'm like, oh, I don't, the last thing I need is more condescending adulthood, right? You're a really bright kid. And I go, well, thanks, whatever. And she's like, uh, but let me tell you something. When you get to 30, you're going to understand how little you really know right now. And, and she didn't mean it mean. She was just preparing me, you know, and well, of course, what's absolutely insane is that on my 30th birthday, I called her up and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you are so right. Like, holy crap, who was that kid? That kid was allowed to sign contracts in my name. <laughs> and, and my mom, this is her, this is her answer. She uh, just goes, <laughs> wait till you get to 40. Uh... <laughs> but, you know, that year I switched to a more professional sales job. So I was, I had a really good salary comparatively and I'd moved to Vancouver, Canada at that stage. And um, why and that, did you that, go into sales and what kind of sales was it? You know, at first um, I, I, I was just, I, you know, I was just scanning through the want ads in the newspaper, you know, back when we had newspapers. And uh, I, you know, my, I had been working at a gas station pumping gas up until that point. And, um, and, you know, there were some things that I noticed about myself there. Like one of the things was I got tips all the time and that's not an industry where you get tips. But I got tips all the time. And my coworkers were always like annoyed that I was always getting tips. Like, how do you keep getting tips? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just, I just do. I just attract them. I, you know, and, and also they, we, we weren't on, um, they, they created this commission program at one point to sell oil, you know, like to, to increase oil sales. Mm. But before they launched the program, they ran a report to see who was keying in the most oil sales anyway, just generally. And I was like outselling everybody like four to one. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, how are you doing that? And I go, well, I don't know. I'm just being nice to people. And so I got that there was something different about the way that I did things. And when the next job, you know, it's going through the, 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 the want ads, I saw this job and it was what we now would call a, um, there's a name for it. It's a blind advertisement. In other words, it doesn't tell you who you're going to be working for or what you're going to be doing or whatever. In my case, I go off to this interview and it's, it's a secretive thing and whatever. And all of a sudden it's the bloody Kirby vacuum company. And, and I'm at an interview to sell vacuums. I'm like, I'm never doing this. Like I'm never, I'm not doing this, but you know, they started talking about opportunity and, and the, and the, you know, the team was pretty cool. And I was like, well, you know what? I could do it for a week or two just to get some training and that kind of thing. And in the end I did incredibly well at it. And, and I, and, and they eventually, uh, you know, promoted me to handle the recruiting for the company. And, 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 and Skip, what's great about this is I was terrified. As you know, I was terrified of public speaking, but they offered me this promotion. And I was like, I just accepted the promotion because frankly, I hated the job. The truth was I didn't like it. Okay. But the promotion meant that I got to work out of the office. And what I would have to do is every week, I'd have to do a mass interview for about 100 people, which means a public presentation in front of 100 people. And I'd have to choose about half of them to go into the training program. And then I'd have to train them for four days, public speaking. And I was terrified. But I did it. I racked up hours and hours and hours on stage, feeling like I was going to vomit every single time. I also set recruiting records that years later, I went back to go visit the company that, I still, that still hadn't been broken. And so it really inspired me to, 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 to kind of go into the path of sales and marketing and that kind of stuff. 
And all of a sudden, my dad was on the board of directors with, uh, of this guy's company. That's kind of a grandiose way of saying he and he, the two guys were buddies because the guy had a company of one. But my dad was on the board of directors. And, <laughs> yes. and the guy had been really struggling to hire anybody to, in sales. Like he just, and, and the truth was, he had the personality, he had the personality of an empty toilet roll. Like he, he, he wasn't a very vivacious, exciting kind of person and didn't understand people at all. So I can understand he was having a hard time hiring people. He was very good at other stuff, right? And so um, my dad convinced him. I think my dad told him, my son could sell ice to the Eskimos. You got to give my son a try. And I went to go work with them. And in that year, I made my food discoveries. I moved to a professional sales job and my entire life changed in a major way. Wow. Oh, man. Okay. So I need to ask about that. But let me back up to one other question that became really important. You said that you outsold everyone on accident four to one with the oil at the gas station when you were pumping gas and you got way more tips than everybody else. So back me up. At what point in your childhood were you born with this gift of gab? Is this something that a family member inspired you? Like who how, where do you think that came from? I don't really know. I, you know, I, I like, I, um, my, nobody in my family was entrepreneurial growing up. Nobody. Like, I think I had one uncle, one uncle who I liked a great deal, but saw him every two years from, you know, like didn't know him well, but everybody else were professional academics. My dad was a professor of law. Uh, my mom uh, was, had a master's of social work. Like everybody was an academic and I'll never forget. I, I, I you know, I, um, Years ago, I got introduced at this event. You've probably heard this story. I tell it on stage sometimes. But basically, I, I was doing this event for Tony Robbins, and he decided that he wanted to introduce me. He changed his mind. He wasn't going to introduce me. Now he was. But it was a Chinese event, and they couldn't find my introduction script. So he just got the Chinese guy to give it back to him in English again. And the reason, you know, so it was translated from English to Chinese. Now it's going back to English. And, and in the intro, it says, like, well, Eric started his first business and sold it nine years later. But it got messed up in the Chinese translation. And so Tony goes on stage and he goes, I'm so excited to introduce this next speaker. He started his first business when he was only nine years old. And uh, it was like, hilarious. You know, I had lunch with Tony a couple of days later. I got, I got to correct that one now before he keeps telling that story, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. then it dawned on me, I did start my first businesses at nine years old. I did. Okay. I was out there shoveling sidewalks when the snow was on there. I was out there raking leaves when the fall came and I was selling seashells as ashtrays on my front step. I was totally a little entrepreneur. Don't know why. Don't know where it came from. Huh. It wasn't genetic. But I will tell you one day, I'm, my mom would have these big parties with all her very lefty socialist friends from the School of Social Work, right? Like, so total lefty socialists. And they would come to my house with beer and our fridge never had enough room for all the beer. So I was smart, I caught on. I'd start making ice before they came and I'd fill the bathtub with ice. And then I would get their beer at the front door and put their beer in the bathtub <laughs> full of ice. And then all night I'd sell their beer back to them. Like I would take their beer and sell it back to them. It's called value-added reselling. It's what America has done for Canada, to, to Canada for years. America buys wood from Canada and sells us back our furniture, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd learned that in school. Here I am doing it. Crazy thing. One of the guys, a guy named Grant Birchall, fabulous guy, really enjoyed having him in my childhood. And even later in life, he, he, was, he showed up again. But he, uh, you know, sitting there with a bit, of a, a bit of a glazed eye look that you have at those kind of parties with little Pink Floyd playing in the background. And I walk up because the, 
Skip, they'd stop coming to get beer from the store. I had to start delivering. You know, this is like 1030 <laughs> at night. Now they're too lazy to come get beer from the store. So I'm walking around with, I'm, I'm 9, 10, 11 years old. I'm walking around selling beer at the party, their beer. And Grant stops me and he goes, Eric, I'll give you $5 if you'll admit that you're a capitalist. And you know what, Skip? I couldn't do it because you see, I didn't know what a capitalist was, but being around my house, I knew something about capitalists. They were evil. They were pigs, capitalist pigs. They were bad people. So I would not take the $5. I just wouldn't do it because I just, I wasn't willing to admit to something I didn't understand the definition of. But many years later, I met Grant again. And by this point I was doing incredibly well financially, everything else. And I went, Grant, I'm a capitalist. Where's my five bucks? And he goes, I think you're doing just fine without my five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So it did start all the way back then. Yeah. And I, I, you know, as much as my parents weren't entrepreneurial in the traditional sense of entrepreneurial, they, they both are serious out of the box thinkers. Um, and so, and they're both very compelling storytellers. And so it's one of those things that I think that to even get airtime in my house, you needed to be able to get yourself expressed. And I suspect that, that maybe, maybe that's where some of that started from. But for me, it didn't really show up until I over, it, for me, that stuff didn't really show up in a major way until I was in my 30s. I, I, I'm certain it influenced me, but I didn't become a comfortable communicator until I was in my 30s. And you also mentioned that in that late 20s, when you figured out the health stuff, you had also started working for your dad's friend as his only employee salesperson, right? And you helped him recruit a bunch of people. And then you also mentioned before when you went through the health transformation that part of the instigation was two friends sat you down to talk to you about your health. Is that correct? Yep. Explain, um, I'm assuming it had been a long time that you were like, okay, I need to do something about my health. I have all these like issues. Maybe it could get better if I looked at some of this stuff. The catalyst was simple. I, 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 was, um, I was a generally healthy looking person. I didn't look like I was particularly overweight, but I constantly had allergies, constantly had infections in my throat. And finally, what had happened is, is that I'd gone to see yet one more specialist and the specialist had ordered my tonsils removed. And I'm generally against tonsillectomies these days anyway. But back then, I, what was I to do? The guy had a clipboard and a degree on the wall. And he, and he was wearing a white lab coat. I mean, you got to listen to him. And um, so I went and told a, a couple of my friends, my friend Tim in Vancouver. And I, I said, wow, I've got to go for this tonsillectomy. And he said, you know what? I, I want to challenge you. And he introduced me to, to Tony Robbins at that stage as well. And he's like, I want you to, I want you to think about changing your relationship with food for 30 days. Just an experiment. Let's just see. And I, I've always considered myself a, a scientist in a sense. I've, I've never, I, I don't really like accept premises. I like to prove them. I like to, you know, I, I, I've always been an experimenter. And so I, uh, I decided I was willing to take on the experiment. And so I did. And I'll tell you something. It, uh, I, that's what did it. I just, 30 days later, I, I had lost 35 pounds. All of the symptoms were gone. I wasn't in pain anymore. Uh, my entire life was different. And, and it was because some people took the time to sit me down and have a conversation. And that's one of the reasons that I do it today, that if those people had given into their own fear of rejection and not sharing that advice with me, they would have left me in pain for another decade until I figured it out on my own, maybe if I was lucky. And so one thing I'm always conscious of is, um, you know, and, and one of the reasons I think I overcame my fear of public speaking was that 
if I let my fear of public speaking stop me from standing on stage in front of these thousand people where I have the opportunity to stimulate change in their life that might take them out of pain and might extend their lives even and might reduce their cost on the, their burden on the healthcare system, then how selfish is it that I, that, I, that I give up all of that potential for my own fear of rejection on stage or my own fear of rejection coaching somebody? No, not okay with me. Beautiful. Wow, so many questions to get into. Okay, so then you're 29, you go through this huge health transformation while you're doing sales for this company. Uh, bring me along that story of your business and money life for the next era. Well, you know, I, um, I, I, I did a, some events with Robert Kiyosaki a couple of years ago, and, um, I, and I told him this. Uh, you know, he's the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I said to him, I really loved your books. And one of the reasons I love them is that for me, they were sort of semi-biographical. Semi I said, I've often been tempted to write to you and ask for the right to write a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad 2, not number two, but T-double-O, as in also. And that's because I largely grew up in a similar way. Um, first of all, you know, my parents left South Africa for a number of reasons, including being against apartheid and not wanting me to get recruited into the military to fight in Angola and all this kind of stuff. And so we moved to Canada as immigrants, but my grandparents never agreed with that idea. And so they basically cut us off. So while our family in South Africa was very rich, we lived in like very lower middle-class poverty. Uh, I remember my parents, I, I, I remember the conversation where my parents explained to me one year that we weren't going to be able to afford to do Christmas. And so, you know, we, we, we grew up with that going on. But weirdly, every couple of years from the age of 12, every couple of years, my grandparents would buy plane tickets for us to come visit them. And we would spend six weeks in South Africa, driving in Mercedes, li living in amazing houses. My grandparents owned a house on the middle of the most prestigious beach in all of South Africa. So I was living in this strange dichotomy of incredible affluence. Every couple of years, I'd get to live in it. And then on the other side, living the way we were living at home in this, in this you know, this sort of uh, lower middle class poverty. And then when I got to, um, I guess, around that same year, you know, around 21, uh, my girlfriend at the time, w incredibly wonderful girl, my, my, my high school girlfriend, we always joked, uh, you know, but we, we were together a long time. And, and during that time, she went to go work for a family as their nanny. They had a surprise baby at 40 and they were like, oh my gosh, we need a new nanny. And, and, um, and what quickly happened was, is that their kids were kind of on the rambunctious side. The father, very successful guy, but also a hardworking guy, off to work at five, often not back until eight. Like, so, you know, there was, there was some energy issues going on there. And so I ended up, uh, you know, my girlfriend would often call me, go, I can't get the kids to go to bed. Would you come over? And we didn't live so far away. <clears throat> so I would come over and get the kids to go to bed. So I was like subbing in for nannyhood here. And then I start, I got to know the kids really well. And I started playing street hockey with them and, I, and, and then all was, and then what was really funny was one day after about a year, my girlfriend quit that job and she wanted to go on and study in college and do some other stuff. But the family kept calling me and saying, Hey, could you take the kids to a hockey game? Can we do this? And I just became a member of the family. They referred mm -hmm. to me as their eldest son and they were very, very wealthy. I mean, you know, there's this one conversation that fairly wealthy people have sometimes that works like this. Say the husband in this case says, honey, I really want to buy that new sports car. And she goes, well, you've already got a car. I know, but I'll sell that one. And then he doesn't, you know, and he ends up with two sports cars. Like, yeah. well, they mm -hmm. had that same conversation, but about jet planes. You know, oh. they, they were at a different level of wealth than anything I'd ever seen before. And I remember very distinctly having this conversation um, with, my, with my, my adopted father. And he said, 
he said, you know, when you've got a little more gray hair, you should come work for me. And I was like, really, what does that mean? You know, they're in the stock, you know, he had started a very successful camera uh, equipment, um, a camera equipment, he and his wife and a partner had started a really successful camera retail operation out of, out of British Columbia and, and sold it for millions and millions. And then he got involved in uh, investment security trading and stuff. And so now he's basically saying, I, hey, I should become, when I got a little more gray hair, I should, well, some, because at that point, I still had acne for, <laughs> I was like, I, I, like, but, but he was, uh, um, he was basically saying I should come work for him. And I said, well, what does that look like? And he described it to me. And I said, well, how much money could one make? And he goes, well, our average guys are making about a quarter of a million dollars a year. And I did my level best not to react to that. Like, and what year is this in? This is 91, right? Like, so yeah, it's 92. like, it's like half a million in today. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different thing today. Right. And I'm like, the, this is the feeling I'm having in my, in, in my body. I feel like this quarter of a million. <laughs> what? <laughs> like what? <laughs> but but my face does this. Really, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> like I'm trying to act all very cool about it. Yeah. But he really got me thinking. And one of the things that he'd done is he'd expanded my beliefs. And the way I often think about beliefs is beliefs are ultimately like the filters through which you experience your objective reality of the external world. Like you 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 might look, everybody gets into this whole metaphysical thing. Can I change reality with my beliefs? Whatever, metaphysical conversation. Why don't we light some insects, incense, you know, we can take a little ayahuasca and talk about it. But what I know we can do is change our perception of reality. And beliefs are one of the keys to that. And what he did that day was he opened, it's like he slit through this membrane and showed me what's on the other side of my beliefs. And what's crazy is I then went and had a negotiation with my boss who wanted to change my comp plan. I was on a salary plus commission program at that point. And he said, I'd, I'd like to change your comp plan a little bit. Um, I'd like to make it a little bit more reward-based. He wanted to lower his risk and increase my reward. And I, I looked at him and I said, I'll go 100% on commission. He said, what? Can you imagine as an entrepreneur? Like I, anybody who comes to me and says, I'll go 100, they, they get the second interview. Like, oh, yeah. really? You're, you're that confident? I just said, I'll go 100% commission. And he goes, well, how much commission do you want? We talked about the numbers. We agreed to numbers. And that year I went from $35,000 at 21 years old to, to $76,000 at 22 years old. At this point in time, I am making, no kidding, three times as much money as my wealthiest friend. You know, like, and, and, and you're selling vacuums. Incredible. And the next year it went to 150. I'm 23 years old. And the next year it went to 250. I got to the quarter million a year because of the conversation with my pseudo father had we, or my adopted father. If we'd not had that conversation, my negotiation would have been entirely different that day. Hmm. And so interesting question, because I know at this early twenties, Mark, you were making 75, 150, 250 a year. What were you doing with that money? Oh, I was doing the most horrible things with it. I didn't know anything about money. Again, I'd grown up without the influence of, of anybody teaching me about money. You know, now we know the science on this is really clear. Somebody wins the lottery, there's a damn good chance it's going to ruin their life. Like there's no, nothing good about winning the lottery unless, unless you really know what you're doing. And of course, by the way, with that in mind, even Camelot, who runs the lotteries in, in, in the UK, in, in, in Britain, they, they determined that they had to, now when somebody wins the lottery, they need to give them a psychology coach, an investment advisor, they like therapist, <laughs> because people accelerate financially too quickly for their comfort zones and they mess it up. They mm -hmm. don't understand how to manage their relationships. I, I really damaged one of my friendships out of generosity. I had a very good friend. We'd been to boarding school together. 
And I just took it upon myself. I'm like, he can't afford it. I like going out for meals all the time. He can't afford that. So I always paid. I always paid. Almost, like, like I just, it, and it was so irrelevant to me financially. But what I didn't realize I was doing every day was damaging his self-esteem. I didn't realize that I was doing that because I didn't know what the rules about money were. And then also, you know what happens at 21 years old? You start getting all those credit card. You, you end up on the dumb idiot list from the credit card companies. They go, ah, another dumb idiot. And they start emailing you every possible credit card you can have. And the next thing you know, I wake up one day and I'm 35 years old and I have $100,000 in consumer debt and a mortgage. And I'm like, how did this happen? I make so much money and I'm in debt all over the place. And it was a major, major problem for me. And, and, and one that I am really grateful that I overcame. And how did you overcome that? So you said at 35, you woke up and you were like, okay, I need to change this. What did you do? I'm sorry, I got the years wrong, 27. At 27. Oh, 27, yeah. Okay, so at 27, what did you do? At 27, um, so you know, I'd, my income had been scaling up like this and I was doing really well. And at 27, I woke up and I had all this debt. And one day I realized that the debt was the absence of freedom. And one of my highest values as a human being is personal liberty, freedom. Uh, you'll see it in everything I do. What do I do with WildFit? I give people personal freedom around food. What do I do with business freedom? It's called business freedom for a reason. As you build a business, it should give you more freedom. It's core to what I believe the human experience is supposed to be about. And I realized that debt was robbing me of freedom. And so I made a firm commitment that year to solve the issue with debt, to figure it out. And of course, what that meant was I was going to have to handle my spending habits that I had. I had psychological issues around what, what I spent money on. Like, you know, I, I was rebelling against the poverty that I'd grown up in. When I was a kid, the idea of owning a pair of skis was like impossible. And it's so funny because I went with a girlfriend of mine to go skiing and I was like, well, we'll rent skis. And she goes, why do you rent skis? And I go, well, I couldn't afford to buy them. And she goes, what? What do you mean you couldn't afford to buy them? And I realized it was an echo of a belief when I was in the past. I didn't even know how much skis were. I just knew rich people had them. So I just had this mm -hmm. idea that I'm not a rich person, even though I had this money. And so I walk into the ski shop to buy these stores. Well, I had enough cash in my wallet to buy the skis. <laughs> like never, never mind. You know, it was just, it was, I just had weird spending patterns at that page because I, and, and also, you know, something else I didn't understand was scaled income tax. I didn't understand that the more you make, the more they take. I didn't get that. So I, you know, that's how I ended up in all, anyway, that year I worked on my psychology around the way I spent and the way I thought about possessions and all that kind of stuff. And then I also, I, I started looking at the, I analyzed my debt and figured out a path for paying it off that I've since learned is a thing, but I figured it out for myself. And, and I think it's called a, tr a debt trickle down. We call it, the, we now teach it at our business freedom programs and we call it um, uh, debt roll down. And basically the way it worked was I just took a look at the lowest debt that I had. And I realized that, and this is a really powerful lesson, by the way, the minimum payment on that particular credit card was say $50. But what a lot of people don't realize is that, and, and I think people are beginning to realize, but when you pay that $50 to the credit company, only about $3 of it goes to the principal. And so I realized that if I could make it $53, that I would be doubling my principal payment. I mean, that's a neat idea. You don't think of it that way. And so then I took a look and said, well, how many, if I, if I curb my spending down, then, because I'm at the point now where my debt is so painful to nurse, I've got to curb my spending because I'm screwed. And so then I thought, well, how much do I have? And I thought, well, if I could come up with an extra $100, so I take that $100 and add it to the 50. Now I'm literally making 10 times the principal payment that I was before. And so then I pay that card off, but that frees up an extra $50 a month of cash flow. So now I take that $100 plus that $50 and I grab it over to the next loan. And I just worked my way through the debts like that. 
and no kidding, one year later and selling a house because there was a mortgage, but it was 100,000 in consumer debt plus the mortgage. A year later, totally debt-free. And let me tell you something, it was the best feeling in the world and the timing couldn't have been better because I had been in a protracted negotiation with my boss at the time and my boss had at best a tenuous relationship with ethics. Um, he was very flexible, very flexible about honesty. And so he had made a number of promises about shares and equity and, and all that kind of stuff since I was the first full-time employee of the company. And he'd already changed his mind about that once, explaining that we had decided that that wasn't the best way to reward my contribution in the business. And so we negotiated a new deal. And the new deal was that I would go and open the same company in Europe, but I would get equity over there. I got to Europe. I started the company. I recruited all the people. I got the offices. I mean, I'm, I'm 26 years old and I'm, I'm building. And you know, my contract arrived, no equity, because mm -hmm. we had decided that there was a better way to do it. And um, I realized something. He was playing chess with me and he thought that I was still in debt. He thought that I needed him and he was using it against me. And in that moment, I realized I'm 26 years old I don't know how I'll ever replace this income because I had limiting beliefs that only I could only make this money in this business, but I didn't want to work for somebody who did that kind of thing anymore. And I quit that job and it was the best decision of my life at that stage in any event. And the only reason that I was able to quit that job was that I had given myself freedom by paying off my debts. Hmm. And I'm sure in that moment, it did not feel like the best decision of your life, but in hindsight it does, right? You know, in some ways it did feel good. I, I, um, I will tell you that I wrote to him and I knew that he would try to talk me out of it. I knew that he'd even probably come back and offer me the equity. I knew that because I'd been the consistently, I was one of the top salespeople of the company for years. And so I was a major chunk of the revenue. Plus I was, I was also the source of most of the top salespeople in the company. So two of my assistants that I had hired on my own money had become top salespeople in the company. So I wasn't just responsible wow. directly for revenue. I was really indirectly responsible for the majority of the company's revenue in many ways. So I really knew there was a chance that he would try to recruit me back or you know, get me to change my mind. And I was so firm in my decision that I wrote to him and the board, and now there really was a board. I wrote to him and the board and I also wrote to the entire company. And I didn't say anything nasty about him. I was very clear. I just said, many of you know that we've had a, you know, that we've had a bit of a turbulent relationship at times. And I have finally made the decision that despite my long ongoing contribution to the company being the first full-time employee and all that kind of stuff, it's time for me to move on. And I did that so that he would be unable to act like it didn't happen and try and talk me into coming back. And what's interesting is, and when I say that he had a flexible relationship with ethics, I'll give you an example. Um, we, we were bidding for some equipment once and he didn't really want to buy the equipment, but he, he didn't want the equipment to be out on the market because he was trying to sell some that he had. And so he made a bid, the bid was accepted, and then he faxed over the purchase order. But I saw him and he's faxing over a blank piece of paper. And I said, what, why are you faxing a blank piece of paper to the guy? And he goes, oh, he always did this when he was, when he was getting one over on somebody, you know, mm -hmm. and he goes, well, he's accepted my bid. And now I have a telephone record of faxing the purchase order to him, but he doesn't have a purchase order. So I don't have to stick with it. Oh. 
Yeah, that's that's the kind of that's who he was. And and so when I quit, I was quitting because of the the final straw was that he'd done this thing to me with the equity again. But the truth is, it was a pattern of behavior that I just got to a place where my soul was worth more than any money I could be making at the company. So in one sense, it was terrifying to leave. I mean, here I am, I'm in a foreign country. As much as I've paid off my debt, I have no money, right? I'm in a foreign country. He's not going to, he, he owes me $180,000. I'm pretty sure he's never going to pay me. I just, I just figured he wouldn't. And so I was really terrified of the result of quitting. But the act of quitting felt like one of the most spiritually clean things that I'd ever done. It was like, it was like finally saying no to my abuser. Mm. And so what happened between that time and I'm assuming the next thing you did was probably starting your own business? You know, a lot of people are like, oh, you were so brave starting a business in another country. You know, so brave. I wasn't brave. I just wasn't legally allowed to have a job in that country. Like I, I, my job, my, wait, my, wait. my right to be in that country was relative to my job. And I just quit my job and I had no money. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And then our biggest competitor contacted me. They offered me 90,000 pounds a year and a top level Mercedes. I was like, oh my God, I've walked right back in again. I was right, and they would get the visa thing processed and the whole deal, and I'd get to really stick it to my old boss by going to work for one of my competitors and all this kind of stuff. I was like ready to do it, and then I suddenly had this like, I don't want to work for anybody anymore. I don't want to work for anybody anymore. And at that point in time, funny enough, I had received a job offer from my adopted father because he was an investor in a securities trading company in Grand Cayman, and I'd always wanted to live in the Caribbean. Like for many years, I'd wanted to, and here I was. I had a job offer to go and become a stockbroker or an investment advisor really in, in, in Grand Cayman. And the only thing I needed was about $50,000 because for the first year it's pure commission. I'm not going to make any money. I got to pay rent. I got to feed my family. I've, by the way, just to make this more tricky, the week before I quit this job, here we are thinking we've got this great five-year contract. My wife and I decided to get pregnant. And, oh. um, and then I quit the job and I go oh. back to her and go, <laughs> no, we're not having a baby. And she agrees. We're not having a baby, but apparently it only takes about two weeks, you know, it's like, cause we, we had just started trying and boom, we were pregnant. So oh now I, I've got to have some money to pay, to pay, feed my family and all this kind of stuff. Here's the irony. The real irony is my ex boss didn't pay me the $180,000 that he owed me in back commissions. Why did we have all these back commissions? Because when we moved to England, his accounting system broke. And rather than paying a reasonable retainer against the commissions, he just kept letting them pile up. Mm. And so he owed me all this money and then refused to pay it to me. Why? Because frankly, we often have this uh, problem of the other mind. If you are fundamentally not trustworthy, you won't trust people around you. And that's how it, I imagine his life must be incredibly unpleasant. And I know that mm. because he never mm. trusted people. So he wouldn't pay me the money because he was afraid I was going to take the money and start a competitive company. Oh. But I wasn't going to, I was going to take the money and move to Grand Cayman and never talk about barcode scanning equipment again in my life. I, in fact, I didn't even like grocery shopping. I was so pissed off at barcode scanning equipment. <laughs> so I was ready to restart my life, but then he wouldn't pay me. And in the middle of all this, I've got rent to pay. I got a baby on the way. He won't pay me. My, 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 I've talked to my lawyer about what I can do. He says, yeah, you can sue him, but he's got more money than you. And he's going to drag it out for two years. And yes, you'll win, but can you afford that? And then he said something so powerful to me. What if you put that two years of effort into something else? What if you just said, move on? 
And that day, around about that time, one of my old clients called me and he goes, Eric, can you help me find this particular piece of equipment? And I'm like, yeah, I can, but I don't do that anymore. I'm not in that business anymore. He goes, yeah, I know you're not in that business. I tracked you down because I called your company and they told me you'd left. And I go, yeah, but I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be in that industry anymore. I don't want to be in that business. And, and, you know, and, and he goes, he goes, yeah, I, I get that. But could you just help me with this one, you know, this one deal? And I go, well, I also have kind of a non-compete agreement. I mean, it's null and void. It's null and void for a bunch of legal reasons, but I, I, I don't just go with legal. I go with moral and I don't feel good about it. And he goes, no, no, no. You wouldn't be taking us away from your old company at all. I go, why not? And he goes, because we would never do business with them again ever in a million years. The only reason we did business with them is because you were working there. We can't mm -hmm. stand your boss. Like we, we've known him for, no. So you, you can feel clean. You're not taking us away from him. And at this point, I'm like, okay, this all sounds really good, but I really, I really don't feel comfortable doing it. And he goes, look, we need these things. We're willing to pay $10,000 for them if you can find them. And at that point going, I know exactly <laughs> where they are. And yeah. I can buy them for about $1,000. <laughs> So, so I go over and I buy, I buy this stuff over here. I sell them to this guy. I don't even touch them in the middle. I, I don't, they don't need refurbishment or anything. And I make $7,000 in a, in an hour. And I'm like, Oh, I like this. And that is why I started the business. It was simply demand. I was like, I have to pay the rent. He's not paying me the money. This guy's calling me. Look at, and boom, I started the company. It was not bravery at all. It was like no choice. Wow. And you started it in Europe, Bristol, in London? In a little town called Rington, in, in just outside Bristol in the United Kingdom. Started oh. in my living room. Uh, once we started growing, I was you know, storing all the packages in my garage. And then my, <laughs> my neighbors started complaining about, about all the UPS and, 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 and FedEx trucks. So then I got an old barn on this little converted estate and moved in there for a little while. And then one thing led to another. And then we got this big, big place in, in, uh, in the west of England where we had a full warehouse. And we stayed there right up until I sold it. And it was working for the barcode scanning company is when the health all came together, right? No, they were, I mean, for me, it was, it was, uh, the, the health thing was just this hobby, right? Like I just was healthy. I'm, I, I, by the way, I catered food for my company very often. Like I, mm -hmm. I would, I had this company come in and deliver fresh cut fruits and vegetables. And I, uh, the health thing was a pervasive part of who I was but I didn't see it as a business. So I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just a healthy guy trying to help anybody that would listen. In the meantime, I started this company. We were selling barcode scanning equipment, wireless network installations, uh, um, handheld computers, mobile computers. Our clients were companies like United Airlines and TNT Delivery and, and uh, uh, you know, Debenhams in the United Kingdom and that kind of stuff. And, and it, was, it was a completely unrelated discipline. And by the way, it actually goes to something you said in the introduction, I think about um, you know, like I've, I've been involved in so many different businesses. It almost seems like I could start a business in anything. And it's not, that's not say strictly true, but there's a, there is a truth to it. And that is that the principles of entrepreneurship exist in every business. And sometimes an entrepreneur is actually constrained by knowing too much about the inner workings of the business. And so if they didn't know so much about the inside of their business, they might have a larger success. And I think to a degree, that's what happened to me with barcode stuff is that I wasn't a software guy. I wasn't a coder. I understood database um, I understood uh, database structure and I could do all the top level stuff, but I couldn't really do the, the ground level stuff, which meant that I had to hire people, which meant that I had to train them, which meant that I needed procedures. And that's why I was able to build a business that I could sell. And so tell me about your internal monologue, building this first business yourself in the UK out of your living room. Like where were you as you were about 30, right? When that started? 27. 
27 when that business started like what was your you said your mom like when you were 21 she's like just wait until you're 30 right who was eric at 27 starting this business um i was uh i was scared and um i was in a foreign country and you know you might be tempted to think well it's just england right you know it's not such a big difference i'll tell you something if you're canadian and you go to tokyo you don't even have culture shock. You just have shock shock because everything's different. You, there's, there's no, you don't have culture shock at all, really. You just go there and go, everything is shock. Food is shock, transport is shock, language is shock. When you go to live in England, I mean, hell, they have the same woman on the money. You know, you think you're in the same place. And you very quickly find that it's not. And, and the culture shock is devastating. It's, it, 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 it's socially challenging. I mean, we lived in this neighborhood and we, you know, like the cliqueiness of it was insane. And we, we, it wasn't anything that we'd ever grown up with before. I heard this crazy joke. And by the way, I'm a big fan of England and English people. I just recognize that it's different. They're not as warm and gregarious as say the way I grew up in Eastern Canada. I would say that Western Canadians aren't even as warm and gregarious as Eastern Canadians. So it's not an anti-England thing, but I did hear this the other day. It's like a friend of mine from England. They're like, I don't understand this whole six feet apart thing. Why should I stand closer to people than I usually do? <laughs> and that's, that's what I found. I yeah. found that the place was, you know, very, very different. And, and I, I was in fear a lot of that time. And I don't know, I, I cannot tell you where, the, where I had the internal constitution to turn down that job. Because actually that job offer came after I'd started the business. I, I was about three weeks in. I had a logo and, and, and I had a website and, you know, I think I had the website, but I was in the early, early stages. And then I got that job offer. And I can't tell you what it was that made me accept that or deny or decline that job offer. I don't, I, I mean, I, I still, to this day, I look at that and go, thank God. I don't know what it was in me that said, yeah, I'll take my total chances out here in the world of entrepreneurship instead of taking this unbelievably secure salary and company car for a huge publicly traded company. I mean, I don't know what it was in me, but there was something that just said it was time for me to be in charge. It was time for me to be responsible. And, um, and that's, you know, and that's, that's kind of what happened. And then I had a really, I had a really big turnaround moment where I realized I didn't have a passion for my business. I'd been in business for about five years. It wasn't big enough to sell yet. It wasn't solid enough to sell yet. It was on track, but you know, not ready. And I hated it. I didn't want to be there anymore. I was sick and tired of logistics. I was sick and tired of barcode labels and scanners and mobile computing. I just wasn't interested. You know what I was interested in? Anthropology, human nature, behavioral psychology. Why? Why were you interested in? Because I'm interested in people. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm interested in what motivates people and I'm interested in why people make decisions that harm their quality of life. I'm interested in stuff like that. I, and this I was a five year. It just powers that. Yeah. So you started the business and in that five years, this passion inside of you grew, right? Yeah. It just, it just started coming up and I, I just, um, I don't know. I, and, and you know, what's funny is I, around about that time, I started experiencing the earliest levels of business freedom where I didn't need to be at work all the time. You know, it's like, I believe that as your business grows, you should have increasing levels of personal freedom. And that's what was happening. You know, I'd, I'd done the right things. I was moving in the right direction. And so I signed up for the, uh, uh, the Prince's Trust. Uh, the Prince's Trust in the United Kingdom is a, um, an organization that does business um, micro lending and, and coaching for people. 
And so they will give a young entrepreneur, say a 5,000 pound loan, and then they'll find a local entrepreneur in the community to mentor them. And I started doing that kind of mentorship and I, I loved it. But then I got myself a mentor and I was talking to my mentor one day and I said, I'm in real trouble. I don't want to go to work in the morning. I'm who did you, how did you find a mentor and who was that? It was actually funny enough. It was, it was a mentor that I had known um, from Vancouver many years before I'd met him through the uh, Tony Robbins world. He'd been, um, he'd been one of Tony's business partners in Vancouver and um, he and I just kind of stayed in touch. And I just contacted him one day and I said, you know, I, I feel like I need a sounding board. Um, and I had frankly, and please excuse the implied arrogance or lack of humility, but I had talked to some coaches and frankly, uh, nine times out of 10, I found that they were getting more value out of the conversation than I was. And I just, I, I didn't find it helpful. And all of a sudden I had a conversation with him. And in my first conversation, I felt like better. I felt like a better person because of things he'd said. I thought, okay, that's going to change some stuff. And so I engaged him for a year and we're having this conversation one day. And I said, I'm, 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 I'm in big trouble. I don't love my business anymore. I don't like going to the meetings. I, I, I don't like logistics. I don't, I'm, I got, I, I can't do it anymore. And I said, and, and he goes, well, can you sell? And I go, we're nowhere near that yet. It's not there. Like, I just know it still needs me every day. And, and he goes, well, hold on a second. When was the last time the company gave you goosebumps? What a great question. Oh, like, what a great question. He goes, when did it last give you goosebumps? When did it give you that feeling of fulfillment? And I think he was expecting me to say like three years ago, but I, no, maybe he wasn't. Now I think about it. And I said, well, actually it was about two weeks ago. And he goes, what was it? And I said, well, one of my employees had been long-term unemployed for many, many years. And I gave him a job opportunity because you know, I gave him a part-time project and it worked well. And then I hired him part-time, then I hired him full-time. And now he's been with me for like seven years. And a few months ago, he approached me and told me he wanted to get a mortgage and asked me if I'd write a referral letter for him for the bank. And so I did. And I found out two weeks ago that he got the mortgage and they bought a house. And I just loved it. I, I just loved that the impact that I'd been able to have on this guy's life. And, and then my coach says, okay, what else? Like, when was the last time you got goosebumps before that? And it was a similar thing. One of my employees came to me one day Funny enough, Skip, in, in serious debt. And I said, oh, I know, I know a thing or two about that. Mm. And so I sat down with her one Saturday and I went through all her debts with her and, and uh, we wrote them all down and you know, I got the numbers of all the creditors and we looked at it and we said, man, even with my debt roll down system, she's going to be in trouble. Like hey, she doesn't have, you know, the debt roll down only works if you got that spare 50 bucks to add into the first payment. She didn't even have that. And so I, I sat there and I looked at it and I said, okay, she's got like $10,000 worth of debt. And I looked at her and I thought, she's worked for me for a number of years. I'm willing to extend her a little credit. And so I, I, I started calling her creditors with her right there on the phone. And I called each one. The first one I called them and said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm so-and-so's you know, uh, employer. And um, I'm trying to consolidate all her debts and help her pay them off because I think she's, she's going to gonna go bankrupt. And I said, uh, if you're willing to accept one third, I'll pay it off in cash now if it's full and final settlement. And the first creditor said yes. And then the second one said yes. The third one said yes. Wow. And, and so in the end, I paid off all of her debt for, for, for 30 cents on the dollar. And then I extended the loan to her for the 30 cents on the dollar and put her on a payment plan and she paid it off. And that gave me goosebumps. And he goes, all right. He says, I finally understand who you are. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, your thing is about improving people's life. That you, you like improving the quality of somebody's life and you like removing pain from people. That's who you are. And I go, all right, that makes sense. I, I, I think I've been like that since I was small. I mean, even in summer camp, I was that kid. And he goes, okay, then you no longer have a barcode company. You have a company 
that creates fulfilling employee for the most fulfilling employment for the most incredible people that happens to sell barcode equipment. And I was back. I was back. I didn't wow. go to those meetings anymore. I didn't get involved in software development anymore. I just wow. I hired the right people to handle that stuff. And I got involved in employee development. I got involved in, and you know, I can tell you something in the 10, nine years that I ran that business, we only ever once lost an employee that we didn't want to lose once. Wow. And that's because his dad passed away and left him three pubs, family pubs to run. And I can't compete with that. But you know, we just created this incredible work environment. And I, and, and, and I would tell you that that one bit of coaching was a very, I mean, if not the keystone bit of coaching I got that made it possible for me to sell that company one day. Because think about it, I had a company I didn't want to work in. I was forced to work on it. And so I built a robust company. And by the way, when I sold it, you know, normally you sell a company and you got to stay on and consult for a year. Nope, didn't have to. They literally took the keys. I left on Monday. They, I, never, I never went back. They didn't, they, the company was so robust that it was basically like selling a car. You don't need me to drive the car for you. Mm. Wow. 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 So then you sell that company. You've got all this freedom now. You've got one child. I, at that stage, I had one child, Daniel. And uh, when I sold the business, he would have been, um, let me think, that's, he would have been about six or seven years old. Wow. Okay. So you've got, and you're still living in the UK in the same town, right? Same suburb. What's the thought process? What is it you and uh, your family making the decisions? Uh, the sad thing is, is that that time was incredibly difficult. I mean, you can imagine I've quit this job and you know, look, you're hearing Cole's notes moments or you're hearing snippet moments of what really happened. Like there were, there were definitely days, like the first three years we teetered on the edge of insolvency for three years. It was a very difficult startup process and we didn't have any money to begin with because, you know, again, you know, it, 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 it was just really difficult. And my, my wife at the time, she's an incredible woman. And um, she went through, we went through some really difficult times at that stage. And I, I suspect that she was going through um, some of the, what we now would think of as postpartum depression and hormone things. And it was a really difficult time for her. And, and in the end, she, um, uh, she made the decision to move back to Canada. And uh, it was kind of complicated, but essentially she was sort of requiring me to do that as well if I wanted to stay in the marriage. And we had all these employees and debts. And if I closed the company at that stage, it was personal bankruptcy and everybody lost their jobs. And um, I, uh, I made the decision not to do that. And, uh, and so she and I split up at that stage and Daniel went to go live with her in Canada. And it was probably the most difficult time of my entire life by far. Um, but by the time, you know, uh, six, seven years had gone on. We, we, you know, she and I had rebuilt a friendship and a mutual respect and the ability to co-parent. And in fact, she's even engaged me a couple of times to speak for the students at her college. Like we have a good, good relationship, but it was a really difficult time at that stage. But the interesting thing was I was really, I did face a really difficult decision at one point, And that was, do I let my company fold? Do I let everybody lose their jobs? Do I end up with all this personal debt and bankruptcy? And, and, you know, do I do all that to, to move back to Canada under duress. And, um, but it would allow me to be with my son and what should I do? And, and I made a decision. I got some, I, again, good mentorship. I called my father and I said, I'm really torn. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, what would you want your son to do? Mm -hmm. I said, well, mm -hmm. I would want my son to be blackmailed into doing something that went against every grain of it. I don't want all these people to lose their jobs. 
I, I don't want to file personal bankruptcy when I don't have to. I'm building something here. And by the way, you know, she and I had an agreement. We, we had a minimum period of time that we were willing to work on this. And she gave up before that period of time. And I was like, do I really want to be controlled like that? And, and, I, I, and, I, and, and I realized I wouldn't want my son to be. And so I, the only way for me to teach is to show. And, and that, that coaching of what would you want your son to do in the same situation made me decide to live my life as best I could. And, and so I stayed and I ran the business and I grew it. And eventually I was able to sell it. Um, and so it meant that by the time I sold it, I had, um, I'd really gone through a really, I'd gone through a very deep personal evolution around, you know, being forced into a position of being, a, you know, an, um, an absentee father, a lot of the time and that kind of stuff. It was very painful, but, um, it also, uh, it stimulated a lot of really serious personal growth at the same time. What does your son remember about this now? Not a great deal. Um, I've had some fascinating conversations with him over the years. And I, I have a policy about the way, um, uh, you know, the way that, um, the way divorce, one of, one of my rules about that kind of breakup generally is that, particularly when there are kids involved, is that neither parent should ever say anything, no matter factual or not, negative about the other parent. And that rule comes from watching my parents go through a divorce. And by the way, my parents are the most crazily good friends in the world today. They, they, I, it, they lived in the same house for nine years at one point, at, you know, completely separate from each other. You know, like they're very good friends, but they were not so conscious about their divorce process. My dad was, you know, was a practicing alcoholic at the time. I don't know. He didn't need any more practice as far as I was concerned, but they call it a practicing alcoholic. So in any event, um, I, uh, I, I just had that rule because I watched my parents do it badly. My mom would say awful things about my dad. My dad would say awful things about my mom. Just in, you know, or, or I would hear them on the phone with each other, you know, and, and so my rule was never have that. And, um, and so one of my rules was that if Daniel ever asked me about what happened during that time, I would always do the very best I could to give him the most objective example. Like, here's a good example. Even with parents, when you're talking to your parents about your soon-to-be ex, you shouldn't vilify the soon-to-be ex. It just makes you look stupid anyway that you picked the bad person. But the other thing is they're not a bad person. You just got to a bad spot in the road. And if you vilify them, you know, it, you're, you're not getting an objective opinion from people about what really is going on. Same with your kids. So in any event, um, you know, Daniel has at times asked me questions about what happened during that time for clarification's sake. And it was really clear, like he didn't really know what happened. He, he asked me once why I left Canada, why I chose uh -huh. to leave him. And, and go to England. And I was like, holy cow. I said, you know that you were born in England, right? Like, and he's like, oh yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm kind of grateful that he went through the ugly parts of that at that precognitive stage where he didn't mm -hmm. have to be aware of it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm sad that, uh, um, I'm sad that, you know, his, his mom chose to live in the, basically the farthest place in the world that she could away from me. Uh, not, not, I don't mean she did it to be away from me. It's just that she chose Kelowna, which is a gorgeous town to live in and a fabulous town to grow up in. And I, I think it was a very good choice in a lot of ways, but as the estranged father, it wasn't ideal. I had no money. I'm, I got this struggling business and now I got to fly half literally to the other side of the planet. And so it means I didn't get to see my son as much as I would have liked. And I, I don't really do regret, but I, I wouldn't want that to happen to anybody. I, I, I learned from it. I think in many ways it served us but it's not, I don't think it's ideal by any stretch. And I'm, I'm really curious now knowing that that happened while you were building the business in one of the harder moments. And you said that was the hardest time in your life that you've experienced. 
back then, I have a question about what you did then, and then what would Eric now say to you back then? But first, what did you do in the hardest moments back then as younger Eric when you were really in it? Like when you cried yourself to sleep tonight because you were so sad, you know, like what were your strategies? What were you doing to pick yourself back up every day? I'm really grateful that I already had an understanding of food at that point um, because I probably would have eaten myself into oblivion like many people do. And I didn't do that. I, I, I maintained my, as a matter of fact, I improved my health during that time. I, I became an avid worker outer. I started, I, I got back into studying the martial arts. I got back into working out and I, I got my body right because I even then knew, and I mean, the science is so clear on it now, but even then I knew that my psychology was dependent upon my physiology. I know it's a two-way street, but I think it's a, you know, everybody's like, oh, the chicken or the egg. I can tell you the answer to that. The egg came before the chicken. It's not, there's no question about that. You know, because there were things that were coming out of the egg before there was a chicken. It's done. Well, for me, it's the same thing. Of course, your psychology impacts your food decisions. That's so true. But your food is the egg in this case. The, the, The food comes first to impact your psychology. And I'm so grateful that I turned to that to really like improving my relationship with food and to improving my relationship with my physical body. I started playing hockey on a regular basis, ice hockey and roller hockey. I got in the shape of my life at that stage and that was really helpful. I also, um, I also made sure that I was fulfilled. Like I did fulfilling things. I'm, I do a lot of wildlife photography and I made sure that any opportunity that I had to be in nature um, around the UK, uh, when I had software projects that we had to do in India, I went to India and I always tacked on the time to do those that time in nature where I could really ground myself and feel good. But I'll tell you another thing. I tried to do the right thing. I really did. I, you know, I, um, you know, when you go through a divorce, it's really difficult at times and, and people don't always play by the rules. And I really tried to do the right things. And there were many times where I could have taken the low road and I chose, there's one time when I took a marginally low road and I, and I, and I wish I felt shame about it. And I, I did it one time in the divorce and I would say my opinion at the time was that my ex took the low road on a regular basis during that time. I don't blame her for that. She was fearful. There were a lot of other things going on. I don't mean it as a, I just mean having watched my, you know, here's one of the differences. She'd gone through a divorce where, um, you know, her parents didn't speak for decades. Um, In fact, I don't think they even started speaking until she and I divorced. So you can imagine, I mean, whereas my parents never stopped speaking and they continued to forge a loving trusting, amazing relationship that they still have to this day. And so I always had that as the objective. And so that's why it was easy to say, well, no, I don't, I don't want to say what I feel right now because that doesn't help us build a friendship. Wow. And then what would Eric today, if you got a phone call from somebody and they were going through something exactly like you were going through then, what would you advise them on now? What stories would you tell? You know, um, I would remind them that adrenaline is dangerous and that cortisol is dangerous because not only is it misused, you know, it was designed to protect you from saber-toothed cats and tribes and that kind of stuff. It wasn't designed to protect you from legal summonses and that kind of thing. And so the minute you find yourself in that type of situation, you have to develop a practice to do everything you can to manage your cortisol levels and manage your adrenaline levels. Because the minute you start getting fueled by adrenaline and cortisol, you will fundamentally change as a human being. Your intelligence will go down. You you know, when, when people are adrenalized, their intelligence drops in a measurable way. 
your connection with logic becomes incredibly basic. The advanced logical thinking becomes impossible when you're highly adrenalized and, 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 uh, and, and full of cortisol. And the other thing that happens is, is that you lose any connection with empathy. You stop being able to see it from the other person's side. And, and the proof of that, by the way, is, is that you know, what happens when people become afraid, the first thing they think about is their family. Then they can get afraid enough that they even aren't even thinking about their family anymore. And the proof of that is somebody who's drowning will drown their own child to climb out of the water. That's why the best practice in the world when you see somebody drowning is you don't go in with them no matter how much they love you because they will become so adrenalized and so afraid that they will have no intelligence, they will have no logic, and they will have no empathy. And so since we know that, then why... Why, what I think we should be doing during those times is making sure we have a really solid spiritual practice, a really solid meditative practice, that this is the best time to be taking care of our nutrition in the best possible way. This is not a time for sugar and carbs. You don't want to be a carb and sugar burner during those times. Like it, It's really difficult to maintain your psychology. And that's the first thing I would say is that you really want to be conscious. And if you let your unconscious um, govern the process, then you will say shit that you regret. And you will do things that you regret and you will make mistakes and you will mistrust and you will assume the worst in other people. So you got to stop that. The other thing I would suggest that's related to that is decide what kind of friendship you want to have when it's all over. You know, like in 10 years, do you want to be able to go on a vacation? Like I could do that now. I, I, I could easily, I could easily go off to Africa and invite my ex-wife and her husband to come and, and my son. I could do that. Do no in fact, in fact, I went to my son's graduation in, in, in Vancouver or in Kelowna. And the truth is, it, it was one of those things. The only reason I was there is graduation. It's not even a nice day for visiting your son because he's with his friends. Like, and I don't know any of the other parents. I mean, it was, it was one of those things as a parent. Like, if, it, Basically, it's about as close as you get to altruism. There was no benefit in me being there whatsoever. And you know, my ex, she knew that. She really, I think she really appreciated that I made the effort to come out for it because it's like 15 minutes of the graduation and then two days of things that I'm not involved with whatsoever. And I can't even see my son. And you know, she spent almost the entire time with me. We were walking around the school grounds together, talking and stuff. Her husband's doing stuff over there. She stayed with me because that's what friends do, you know? And so I'm asking in that situation of anybody going through it, do you really love this person? And I know you feel like you're out of love with them right now, but you did love them, right? Like you, 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 you can't ever really stop that. You're going to, and if you have kids with them, you kind of owe it to the kids to figure that out. And so what kind of friendship do you want to have? And my goal would be to say, don't you want to be able to sit and have dinner with each other without making snide remarks at each other, without getting angry? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to do that? And if you, if you keep that in mind, then you, then you look at your behavior on any given day and you go, is doing this moving me away from that goal or toward it? Wow. Beautiful. And now to walk back into the realm of business, you get through this very hard time. You focus on your health. You get your psychology in order. You're stressing less. You get to the point where you give the keys over. You sell the robust business. What do you do now? That was a really fascinating time. Um, the guys called me one day and they're like, uh, it was a really funny phone call. It, 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 we were, I was in the car actually. The phone call came in, it was from an investigator. They'd hired the, the bank that was funding the deal, um, hired this investigator to do due diligence work and so on. And, and the investigator calls and we're in the car and, and, and Paul, the buyer, he's like, shh, don't let him know you're shh. Yeah, hi. Oh, uh, we finished our investigation and God, that Eric guy's an idiot. And I'm like, uh-oh. What's going on? Price is going down. Price is going down. And he's like, yeah, we told him to send us 
three sample clients so we could investigate those three sample clients. I even gave him a wink and a nudge so he knew she, he should pick the three best clients. But instead, he printed off a report of his top 20 clients. He could have cherry picked the best three, but he sent us all 20. He's, it's like he's slow or something. And I'm going, oh no, what have I done? And he goes, and worse than that, we have ISO 9000 quality standards and our regulations in the company are whatever they send us, we have to investigate. Eric said, pick any three, but we actually have to do all 20 because he sent them to us because we can't take the liability of picking the wrong three. So we had to investigate all 20 of them and the bank had to pay for it. And everybody's pissed off with Eric. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, I'm such an idiot. Price is going down, price is going down. And he goes, but, but there's another problem. What, 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 what's the other problem? And he goes, well, when we talked to the clients, every single one of them mentioned Eric by name, personally. <laughs> and, and that's generally not a good practice. You don't want to buy a company where the entrepreneur is the name of everything. And I'm going, oh man, never mind the price going down. We're going to lose the whole deal. And, and, and Paul looks over and he winks at me and smiles. He's not worried about it because he's done his own investigation. So I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Then the guy goes, but we're not that worried about it. Why not? Well, they all mention him by name but none of them have heard from him for two years and they asked us how he was doing. <laughs> so he was like, so obviously it indicates that he's not necessary to the business. And, and, and then he goes, but there's one more thing, Paul, and this is weird. We've never had this happen in all the years we've done these investigations. We called all 20 of them. We have a tier structure for their feedback. And the highest rating is we love doing business with this company and we are eagerly and actively seeking ways to do more business with them. So it's not like we like, them. it's a high, and he goes, he got all 20 in that category. Uh, we've never seen anything like, I'm like, prices going up, prices mm -hmm, going mm -hmm, up. Mm -hmm. And you know, about a week later, we closed, the whole deal was done, and suddenly I'm sitting with all this cash. And then, oh yeah, as we're closing the deal, he calls me and he goes, the bank says we have to hire you as a consultant. And I'm like, that was not the deal. You and I said, when you called me, he called me unsolicited wanting to buy my company. I said, if you buy it, you buy it on Monday. I leave on Tuesday and you can call me, but I am leaving. I am not going to stay and work in a company I don't own anymore. And if, they, if it can't be that way, then I'm going to stay in it and grow it for another five years and sell it for a bigger sum. Done. It's fine with me. He goes, no, 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 no. You don't have to stay. You don't, you, but the bank says we have to hire you. And I go, great. We'll do a contract. We'll do the old Steve Jobs deal. Pay me a dollar a year. And then you guys can call me anytime you like, but I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not coming to the office. And he goes, yeah, the trouble is there's a formula the bank uses for how much we have to pay you. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, based on the transaction level, we have to pay you 11,000 pounds a month as a consultant. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm not coming to the office. I'm not doing it. I got enough money from the deal. No. And he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, you don't have to come to the office. We just have to pay you 11,000 pounds a month. <laughs> so I'm like, and in Canadian, oh, man, that's like, weird. and that's yeah. a pound skip pounds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now I'm sitting at home. I've done the deal and I've got this gorgeous apartment in Western Supermare on the West of England. I can see Cardiff across the bay. You know, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous across the inlet. And I'm just loving my life there. Day one goes by and I'm like, this is so cool. And I watched some West Wing. And then, and then and day two, I'm like kind of bored with West Wing. And I loved West Wing, but you can only watch so many hours in a day. I mean, you know, what am I going to do now? And I go to the gym and I, you know, I, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And then all of a sudden I'm like, 
I'm feeling a little insignificant because normally I walk into the office and people are like, what can we do for you, sir? What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Like I had this army and that's gone. And, and I, I started feeling super empty, like really empty. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And I just mentioned this to a friend of mine. I'm like, I just, and he goes, you know, you should just travel. You really like to travel. Why don't you travel? And I go, I was thinking of travel. I just don't know where to go. I keep, I can't decide. I, I'd love to go to Africa. I, I, I want to go to Canada. I, I, you know, and he goes, well, how long have you got? And I go, I got, I, I got no limit. And he goes, you know, you can, you know, you can buy like round the world plane tickets. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you can buy one plane ticket and it'll take you all the way around the world. And you can just like build your own schedule. And he, and I went to the website for this it's star Alliance talk. I go, and I, 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 it's so cool. The app is so cool. You go to this city, then you go to that city and you go to this city and you go to that city. And I plotted out, this, this is, this is, this is on Monday. Mm -hmm. So I plot the whole trip out on Monday and then on Tuesday, I walk into the travel shop and I buy the ticket and I leave on Wednesday, like that fast Wow! for a three month round the world trip. One suitcase, off I go. And, um, and, and that's what I did. And I, and I, I went around and I, I explored the world and I wrote and I did research and I met people and I just had the most fulfilling time. And in fact, over the next two years, I would do six of those round the world tickets, six of wow. them traveling all around the world, visiting the most incredible people, visiting the most phenomenal places and just having the, the greatest life experiences. I have like a whole nother series of questions in my head already. I've got, I've got so many, but for the sake of time and energy and just how awesome this has been i'll consolidate it and i i have two two last things i want to ask you one is more of a statement one is more of a question the statement is um i just want to kind of bring up before i ask you the last question two two um like amazing questions or quotes that you've dropped that i can remember that i am just like gonna write those down on my wall and hold them there for a while the first one is when's the last time uh, your blank gave you goosebumps? And I feel like you could fill in that blank with any category of your life. And I always say, uh, you know, if something is hard or challenging, it's either a matter of perspective or it's objective. And the truth is it's always both. And if the objective reality cannot change, you can always change the perspective. And that's exactly what that mentor did for you. And that question, I feel like, is just mind-blowingly awesome. And I'm so grateful that I got to hear that question today because I'm going to use it all the time now. And the second question was the one, I feel like, I, what was that question now? I think it was like your dad or somebody had asked you. Dear, mm -hmm. what would you want your son to do in the same situation? Yes, yes. So asking the question, like, what would you want your child to do? if they were an adult in this situation, which is a similar question to like, what would now Eric say to then Eric or old man Skip, I always say, would say to now Skip. And, and those two questions, but specifically, what would you want your child to do? Oh, just such an incredible question. And so my last question for you that I'm sure is gonna be juicy is just with everything that's going on in the world today, I'm, I'm sitting here in my dad's house in Florida with the whole family hiding out for the last seven weeks and getting ready to, to hopefully go back home to California soon. You're in the Dominican Republic, um, just quarantined, hanging out there. International travel is really not impossible, but very challenging right now. 
What's like the one big message uh, that you think is really important for people to hear right now or something that you'd like to say that we can feature? I have two. I can't, sorry, can't give you one. Got to give you two. Um, the first one is, is that uh, seven weeks ago, I made a video um, suggesting that social distancing and all that stuff was important, but that your uh, last line of defense is your own health your own immune system. And we released that video through Mindvalley and it's gone on, I think, to have something like a million views across the platforms. And the funny thing about that video is that I got a lot of flack. I had a number of doctors writing to me and saying, you're misleading people. You can't do that. You know, immunity is a different thing than health. And, you know, if a disease kills X percentage of the population, it just does that random X percent. Of the, I mean, I'm, I, I had hate mail from people about this. And, um, uh, now we know that it's that it was right on point that that video was right on point that uh we are seeing the science is blatantly clear on this that um your pre-existing health conditions created by the food industry and your own lifestyle decisions have everything to do with how intense somebody's COVID experience is and whether or not it kills them it's absolutely clear in the science. And I would even put it to this degree that if COVID was to have happened in the 1960s, we wouldn't even have known about it because there were not enough sick people in the population for it to take a foothold. You may have swept through the population, but as we know right now, 50 to 80% of the people that get COVID-19 do not experience symptoms at all. And so if you take out the 10% that are being ravaged by it because of diabetes and obesity, hypertension, inflammation, and so forth, if you take them out, it's an irrelevant disease. And I know that's controversial to say, but I think here's the lesson in it. This will not be the last bug. I don't care about the conspiracy theories. I don't care if you think the Chinese created the bug or the bat gave it to us. I don't really, that, none of that really matters. The fact is, is that it's out there. And, um, and it's not going to be the last one. And now more than ever before, we understand that our health is our responsibility and that our relationship with food and exercise has everything to do with that. And so I'm hoping that people will really get that and they will change their buying patterns and through changing their buying patterns, change food manufacturing around the world and change food regulation around the world. We are a burden to our healthcare systems around the world because of the food industry. Diabetes is currently costing the American government $360 billion a year. Obamacare saves the government $10 billion a year. That's basically like saving 50 cents on the purchase of your car. It's a ridiculous, ridiculous situation that we're in. And it begins with food. So that's my first observation that we can learn from this pandemic. Damn it, skip by three. I'm sorry. They're just really important. The second one is... Use the pandemic as boot camp instead of summer camp. What's going on right now is a lot of people are using it as summer camp. I'm just chilling. I'm watching a movie. You know, I'm, I'm eating yummy food. I'm hanging out. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, and they're getting fatter and dumber as the, as, the, as the lockdown proceeds. And what we could be using the, the pandemic for, what I'm using it for, is to get stronger and smarter and faster and healthier. I'm using it as boot camp. I'm working out. I'm eating well. I'm reading books. I'm creating products. I'm working to make an impact on the world. And so I really believe that the second message I want to leave everybody with is you, you've got to use the, 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 what's left of the lockdown as a boot camp, not a summer camp. And by the way, everybody just think about this. If you knew it was going to last this long, might you have done some different things with it? Because it's still going to last a while. 
And then here's the third one. It's the most important message of them all. And, and, and Skip, I'd love to talk with you about this message anyway, because I'm going to do a video about this and I'd love your feedback because you're so bloody good at that. But here's the message. Perspective is one of the greatest forms of epiphany in the world. Just shifting perspective can give somebody an epiphany. And I would, give you the, I would give you this example that I believe that the North American Indians, the South American Indians, the Aboriginal people of Australia, the Pacific Islanders, they are not genetically environmentalists. They, they were no more environmentalists than we of European descent were from. They, they obliterated every land animal that they could when they landed in their planet, on, on their islands and on their continents and stuff. They, they're just like us. They're no different, but they have perspective. And here's the perspective they got. Europeans landed where they live and devastated the place even faster than they were. And that gave them a perspective. And that's why you hear such a powerful environmental call from the first peoples of all these places. And I believe that we are now going to have that same perspective. We are going to be the first peoples again, because you see, it took decades to make the Himalayas disappear behind the smog. It took decades to devastate, to absolutely destroy the air quality of Los Angeles. It took decades to destroy the, 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 the air quality in London and Delhi and the various cities in China. It took decades for litter to pile up all over the oceans. And you know what's going to happen right now is the lockdown is going to end. And what happened in decades before is going to happen in weeks this time. And my hope is that that gives us the perspective that we need. That the people of Los Angeles are going to go, where they used to go, man, the air's bad today. The air's so bad today. Get in my car. Let's go somewhere. They're, they're sitting in the best air quality in the country right now. In fact, Los Angeles has among the best air quality in the world right now. And within weeks of the pandemic ending, the lockdown ending, the air quality is going to go to shit immediately. And I'm hoping that people in LA go, no, no, no. And they're going to write to Gavin Newsom and they're going to change things and that they're going to do the same thing in London, England, and they're going to do the same thing all over India and China. I am hoping that they're going to do that because as I walk along the beach here in front of my house, there's no litter there. And that really gave me a breakthrough because you see, there's always litter there and the resorts always clean the litter there. And I thought that when the lockdown started and the resorts stopped cleaning the beaches, that the beaches were going to have litter pile up. But you know what's really crazy? There's no litter there. What it shows me is the litter was not this ever-present thing floating around the ocean, and I know that exists as well, but the litter on our beaches was the daily jettison of an ambivalent population. And I'm hoping that the end of the lockdown is going to change that for us. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you for those messages. They're all, all great. I'm sure all will be taken separately out of this and, and used for, for awesome messages. Um, and then I guess my, my final thing is, you know, thank you so much for coming on, for sharing all this wisdom, for being so available, for doing all the crazy setup stuff with me before we got started so that it can look good and sound good. And when people fall in love with you, where can they find you? How can they support you and see what you're doing in the world? You know, um, really these days, the best way to reach me is on Instagram. I, I, I All the other social media stuff is people, marketing and whatever, but I manage my own Instagram at Eric Edmeads. And I answer all the questions myself when I can. I can't get to everything, but I do the best I can. And I often answer in voice. And so coming and finding me on Instagram is the best way. But of course, they can also go and uh, to uh, www.eric.ee for my primary website and getwildfit.com if they want to learn about food psychology and nutrition. 
Beautiful. Well, I really hope we get another opportunity to do this so I can go through my whole second round of questions going into the, the later part of your life. And a little spoiler alert, I want to hear all about this wildlife photography and how that became a thing, why that's a thing. I know your, your um, rich dad, uh, 2.0, had the, the photography store and all that stuff. So I'm sure that kind of goes into it a little bit, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear all uh, about it. I will it. tell you the story another day, but I'll just give you the clue. Yeah. 12 years old in the Kruger National Park, and my uncle hands me an SLR camera for the first time. And my grandfather says, that's a complete waste of film. And then my grandfather paid for the development of all the film because it was not. Ooh, okay. Okay. I'm excited. Well, beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, welcome. Thanks for having catch me. up soon.